This morning, the Word of God that engages us is the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20 that Deanne just read for us. And uh, uh, no doubt each of us is familiar, at least somewhat, with the Ten Commandments, have some guess at what they are, or maybe because you learned this handy-dandy handy way of memorizing them. Are you ready? One, you should have no other gods before you. Two, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do you see the V there? Three, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Trinity. Four, honor your father and mother. Two plus two equals you. Five, do not commit murder. Makes a gun. That's kind of scary. Six, do not commit adultery. Seven, do not steal. Eight, do not bear false witness. That's a W. Nine and ten are covet. There is no signs for that. But maybe that's how you learned it. Or if you didn't learn those, maybe it's because the Ten Commandments aren't necessarily unique, but forms of them are found universally in almost every single culture. In his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis explained how there certainly is this universal morality among humans. And he gave these concrete examples of how all cultures of the past were able to agree on the basics of morality because these principles are implanted in the heart and in the mind of mankind. He showed how all cultures have said that murder is wrong and that kindness is good, how they agree that we have particular obligations to our family, how they say that honesty is good and that a spouse can't just take anyone that they want. They agree that stealing is wrong and that justice is good and there are no cultures where cowardice is celebrated and that bravery is looked down on. And whether you're familiar with the commandments or not, I do hope today that as we look at this text and as we dive into them, you'll hear something new. Maybe uh, maybe not new necessarily in the commands themselves, but hopefully at the heart of these commands. So let's dive in. We're going to be jumping all around the Bible today. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at Old Testament verses, New Testament verses. We're going to start in Exodus. As always, the verses will be on the screen to help guide us as well. And since Deanne just read this, I won't read it to you again. But what we're going to see right away is that this is God's direct address to Israel. Notice also that it says words, not commandments. We are the ones who chose to put command and obey. It may have been better probably to where we just see words to listen and respond appropriately. That's a different way of lurking at it. Maybe that changes it. Maybe it doesn't. Anyways, what we see here is that first these words are spoken by God and they are heard by Israel themselves. It's God's very own voice and his strong authoritative voice that reigns out. And when the people hear it from themselves at the end of these commandments, they're going to ask Moses to intercede between them and God because they just can't take God's voice because it's so powerful and so wonder and so much fear was caused in their hearts because of listening to it. But look again at this introduction here that God gives in these words. They are important and they're appropriate for our understanding. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Right away, we learn that the Ten Commandments are not just some law code, some way of living meant to be understood outside of the narrative context that God is giving them in. See, this isn't just some God who suddenly appears on the scene and he's now demanding certain behavior and requiring impossible efforts. This is a personal God who has known his people from the beginning who, as he says, himself has redeemed them. That first line about redemption, unfortunately, is often omitted when we print out the Ten Commandments. But when we recognize this as the first word, the first thing that God said here, everything that comes after this 
follows and is rooted in this truth about who God is. Because this opening word of God accomplishes several things. First, it keeps those commandments personally orientated. I am the Lord, your God. It's a singular God. And obedience or, or listening and responding appropriately to the commandments is now relationally rooted. These words are given to you by your God. The law is a gift from your God who has redeemed you. They are a gracious word of God that begin with a good word, a good news about what God himself has already done for you. And how on behalf of you, you are now this member of his community of faith, his child, his very own. So we have to read the commandments through this lens of this redemptive work of God. That God's saving actions have drawn us, his people, into a, a relationship with him of life and blessing to which we now respond to his words and shape our lives to be in relationship with him properly and to be in relationship with one another the right way. Again, these words aren't establishing uh, something new, right? Israel has always been God's people. That's why the phrase to Pharaoh was, let my people go. God is giving this to a people who have already been elected, who have already been redeemed, who already believe in him as their God, who are already in a worshiping community to him. These are given from God so that we can shape our daily life and be in relationship to him and others. And part of this, God-defined way of living, God-defined way of being in relationship is a reminder that our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stands apart from the gods at the local time who were just as immoral as the people that they were telling must do these things. When God speaks, these are his words for us. They're not invented by man. There is no man who is above these words. But this is the word of God that we shape ourselves around. Commandment gives way to life, creates identity, and it creates the community in which we live. And so I hope you see that the appeal is to this deep grounding, this deep motivation. These are the commands, these are the words spoken to you from a God who loves you, who has created you, who has redeemed you, who cares for you, who rescues you, who loves you, and out of love shows you who you are to be. And when we root ourselves to the beginning of the first word that he speaks, it fundamentally, fundamentally changes the way we approach the commandments because we see them now as a loving parent, as a father who cares for his children and wants what's best for them. Maybe before you saw these commandments as God is restricting, right? That God wants to get something out of you. He doesn't want you to have any fun. That God doesn't want you to have any freedom. The idea of a God-defined way of living seems to become less and less popular the farther away we go. But the idea for a moral code, well, that we just know. We know that's right. That should stay strong. People should still be good according to whoever's in charge and saying what should have done. But we don't need some God telling us what to do. We know that already. I think nothing is further from the truth. Because when we live by whoever is currently in control or when we live by our own ways and feelings, we ultimately become a slave to the things we do. A slave to our wants, 
slaves to the things that we want to surround ourselves with, but truly living, living free, is to be released from that way of life, of wanting, and instead to live in God's ways, which doesn't mean that life is suddenly any easier, but it does mean that when we live His way, we find peace and contentment, and we find purpose. The truth is we need God to tell us how to be. We need God to tell us how it is and to let him guide us. After Christ, the apostles knew this. Paul says in Romans that the law itself is holy because it is just, it is good. James said that every good and perfect gift comes from God and that these ways of living are gifts of God to us and to humanity. The law in itself is good and necessary. But the Ten Commandments were never given with the thought that by keeping them, we might suddenly earn heaven, or by obeying them, or that we would be able to obey them perfectly or adequately. The covenant, the promises, the agreement here that comes doesn't stop here at the Ten Commandments and the law, but is much more bigger. It comes also with sacrifice. And sacrifice was given as part of the law or part of the next steps in the law because God and Israel both knew that it would be impossible to keep this law perfectly. They had to become dependent then on the sacrifice. Sacrificing an innocent victim as a substitute for the guilty lawbreaker. And it started with animals and it moved to one man. Because what we find when we look at the law is that the Ten Commandments were like a, a, a mirror. Uh, um, uh, Lutherans often teach the law in, in three different ways. They call it a curb. It keeps people on the moral path, like a curb does with cars, right? You're not supposed to drive on the curb. All right, we all knew that. It's a mirror. When we look at the law, we see, oh, I have failed in these different ways, and they show us that we need a Savior. And then ultimately, the law works as a guide, guiding our heart and our ways to follow and what God would have us do. And Paul kind of expanded on this idea of, of, of curb and mirror and guide by talking about how in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was like a, a schoolmaster who taught us. Before everything was revealed fully in Christ Jesus, we were supposed to just be kept under this law as, as a guard. We were, it was our, um, uh, like our tutor. But then the law comes and is revealed in Jesus Christ. It shows us that even though we have sinned now, now we don't have to live under that law because of what Christ Jesus has done to fulfill it. Instead, the law is removed as our master and it is replaced with Christ Jesus. Now what does that do? Does that mean we don't no longer have to follow God's law? Not at all. But instead we're not held under it as the defining thing of what we must be in order to please God. And instead now God finds pleasure in us because of what Christ Jesus has done. And so the law truly becomes our guide so that there is no mistaking who we are and what we were supposed to be about because we belong to Jesus Christ who has freed us from that power of the law which would condemn us and instead has given us his spirit, his grace so that we may follow the law joyfully and through the spirit become renewed each and every day to look more like Christ. Some people began thinking then, okay, so this will be easier now that we can get rid of this law and just have Jesus. 
And nothing could be further from the truth because what did Jesus do when he came? He puts it this way in Matthew chapter 22. He sums up the law by saying you have to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that you have to love your neighbor as yourself. He says that everything in the commandments that we're going to look at hangs on this idea of loving God and loving neighbor. This implication doesn't get rid of the law, but rather fulfills it. It's the heart of the law, which is what we want to look at today. Because the problem is never in the law itself. The problem is in keeping the law. Especially when you read that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus fleshes it out. Adultery is not just committing the act, but it's looking at another person lustfully. We see just how hard and impossible it is. So Christ Jesus comes. Because as fully God and fully man, born under the law, he fulfills for you what you could not do. And just like we sang, where we deserve wrath and damnation because of breaking the law, instead we are given mercy. We are freed to be made new and to walk with God not in an obligatory way, but in a response to his mercy and into his love. This is amazing news. This is a promise. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, now we understand them in their fullness. We understand their purpose to show us our need for Christ Jesus and to help guide us in what it means to be his disciples. And I'm going to skip that Romans verse. I'll come back to it later, Katie. And I'm going to just pull up the commandments. Now, as we take a look at them in their entirety, notice that God has grouped them together into two groups. The first three focusing on our vertical relationship with God and the second on our horizontal relationship with one another. Here it is. You shall have no other gods before me. This is introducing all of the commandments and giving shape to the rest. The focus here is against idolatry. And how do you define idolatry? Well, in a little bit, it's going to be that golden calf, right? The calf comes down and they're worshiping graven image. But other gods could include any person, any place. These other gods could also lift up maybe some of the gods that are worshipped among us today, like money and property and fame and power. But it begins with absolutely loyal to God. Martin Luther says that the call in each commandment is to fear God, to love God, to trust in God above all things. This commandment is the grounding for all the other commandments. That's why God, or that's why Christ looks and says, love God completely. The second one talks about not misusing the name. Turns out that's a little bit more than just not saying OMG. Here we find that idolatry includes the language when we speak of God. This is the, the next one, Katie. Might the problem of idolatry for us often then be verbal images? Maybe the problem is that we create our own pictures of God, that we speak of who we want God to be so that we can control him, we can fix God. So we can box God in and say, this is who God really is, and this is what God really says. That's why when the next one comes of remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, you see the importance of worship, of holding the word of God as first in our lives not our interpretation of it. And then it moves from having a relationship with God where he is God 
and we are not to how we live amongst one another. And as we throw these up, you don't have to spend much time wondering what these mean. They're pretty straightforward and simple. But if you notice at the very end that the heart, the desire, is what bookends both our relationship with God and with one another. And while the commandments may be for the individual, the focus is to live them out, to serve for the benefit of the community. We each play a role in this community because God has defined the way we are to be in relationship with one another. And when we hold to that first commandment, how we think about God impacts the way we think about one another. And I believe that because the commandments aren't just supposed to be ways that we act, they're supposed to be things that influence our heart. I want to close with this story that Jesus uses and I think kind of shows and gets to the heart of the commandments a little bit more. This is from Matthew chapter 19. And uh, Jesus is going around teaching and a young man comes up to him and says this. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus knows his heart, right? So he knows exactly what to say. And the man says, well, which, which ones? Which ones are you talking about? And so Jesus replies, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie, giving false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man responds by saying, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And I love this part because I think you can just see Jesus' heart kind of break and his eyes just smile at the man because he knows. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, then go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great health. And again, we might read this story and think, oh, this is just Jesus telling us we have to do even more. But I don't know if the heart of this story is really about doing. I mean, yes, you do have to do. But this is about inside. And there's these two guys called the skit guys. Anyone know the skit guys? Thank you. I see that hand. Okay, so one guy does. They're guys who do skits. And uh, one of these on this story is my favorite. And it has the Apostle Peter, and he chases down this rich young man, and he wants to know, why did you walk away from Jesus? Why? Why, did you, why didn't you stay? And the man looks at him and says, what are you talking about? I wanted to do something for Jesus. I could have helped Jesus. I believed in, in Jesus in his message. I wanted to, to get on Jesus' team and help him out. He's done a lot, and, and, and he needs to know that, that I could help him. But then he goes and he asks me to, to give up everything? No way, I'm not doing that. And the man is, is frustrated, right? Because all he wants to do is just help Jesus. He's got power. He has wealth. He has influence. And, and can't Jesus just see how much the man could do for Jesus? And Peter says, no, no, no. It's not about that. God, he, he calls all of us to give up something to follow him. And don't worry, it's worth it if you can do it. And the man looks right at Peter and it just kind of stops. And he says, and what did you give up, Peter? A life of a fisherman? Exhausting work? Long hours, rough hands, getting up in the morning, stinking like fish, being tired all day long? Do you have any idea what I would be giving up if I gave up everything? Look at all of this. Look at what I have. 
How could I walk away from that? Why would I walk away from that? And he says, I just wanted to help him. But Jesus is going to go and make these rules. There's no way I can let him decide the terms of my life. I am the one who makes the decisions. I do what I want when I want when it works for me. Who is this Jesus to tell me what to give up? And I feel that. And I wonder if maybe you do too. The way we approach God's law and say, who is he to tell me what I'm supposed to do? How can he require of me to give up so much? And it's not easy to give up. It just isn't. 14 years sober, I know. Not that me giving something up was any harder than any of the rest of you. And you can ask around this room what you gave up so that you could choose a life, what you had to walk away from to not hinder that spirit that calls you to something more. Each one of us needs to decide to follow the ways of God to let ourselves be included in God's community, to take a hard look at ourselves in that mirror and ask God to peel back those layers of our heart that we we so want and desire that are against what he wants. Because it's not optional. It's the call to follow, not to earn your salvation, but to have life. And look around. The time is now. The time is now to start being people of God, of rooting ourselves in his word, of looking different than the rest of the world. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price, you were redeemed. Don't throw away that free gift of God by taking the easy road. Don't focus so much on on all of the gaining. And miss the very first word God spoke to you of who he is, the one who rescued you, the one who offers you his very heart to take refuge in and to find strength in. He doesn't say work for it and then I'll give it to you. He says it's yours. I give it to you freely in my son Jesus. And I will do what you cannot. I will make you my own. And that is the invitation to walk in that kind of a way, to walk in love, to walk in truth, to walk in knowing fully who you are and who you belong to, to be a part of his community and no one else's, to listen and to respond appropriately. Amen.